0: I'm Samantha Engel,
1: and I'm Aaron Gullius, and this is Great Lakes Lore.
0: How's it going tonight?
1: Not bad, not bad. It feels like spring today.
0: Uh, well, I, I found that people south of me on all sides of the state had far better weather than I did today. I gathered from Facebook. So
1: it was gorgeous. It was in the 40s. It was sunny uh, tomorrow. It's going to be 54, uh, but it's going to be raining all day. So it feels like spring.
0: It was gray. When I took my lunch walk, it was 30. It was windy. And we're getting, well, here up to a tenth of an inch of ice and at work up to three tenths of an inch of ice overnight until noon tomorrow. So
1: I will try not to complain about the gentle rain we will have.
0: You better not complain about Uh, anything.
1: (laughs) No. It's only 54 (laughs) degrees. This sucks. Um, Yeah. Okay. I won't complain.
0: No, perspective. (laughs) (laughs) They're making emergency plans for how to run a generator in the makeshift greenhouse that we have at work because our conservatory is being worked on. Because if there's ice and the power goes out, we don't want, you know, thousands of dollars of plants to die. (laughs) All right. Well, should we dive into this episode?
1: Probably should. We should probably tell people what we're doing tonight. Yeah.
0: Yeah, go for it. You've got the background. So oh, that's right. So we're
1: <laughs> we're looking at a place called Whitewater, Wisconsin. And I, I think we're titling this something along the lines of The Witches of Whitewater, Wisconsin.
0: Oh, we haven't talked like about it. a title. No, so we perhaps it'll so. be that. Or perhaps perhaps maybe it won't that. be.
1: Whitewater, Wisconsin is a town that sort of straddles part of two counties, Walworth County and Jefferson County, about an hour southwest of Milwaukee and about two hours and change northwest of Chicago, so sort of southeast Wisconsin. Its current population is a little under 15,000, and uh, it's the biggest thing it's it's got going on is that it's home to the University of Wisconsin at Whitewater. White settlement in the area began in 1836. If you count when a White person first claimed land, or 1837, if you count it as somebody actually <laughs> building a house and living there.
0: Distinctions,
1: yeah, right. You got you got to be careful about this. In 1837, um, the group a group of 20 settlers from New England uh, traveled west via the Erie Canal across Michigan, across Lake Michigan, landed in Milwaukee, and then set out as a group from Milwaukee um, to the site of Whitewater, which was a six-day trip at the time. The town grew really slowly until 1852, which is when the railroad came through, which caused the population to just explode. In 1844, there were about 29 households in Whitewater. And uh, within 10 years after that railroad came in, about 2,200 people living in the town in just just within a decade of the railroad showing up. Whitewater, uh, sort of not in line with the stereotypes of Wisconsin, had an unusually low, almost non-existent German-American population. And it was even low in comparison to the rest of southeastern Wisconsin, which was the least German part of the state. Uh, Whitewater and Walworth County were this sort of Anomaly of staunchly abolitionist, um, consistently voting with the Free Soil Party and the Whig Party, and later the Republican Party in Wisconsin. There's a whole paragraph on just this county in this history of Wisconsin electoral politics. It's, it's just this weird little New Englandish anomaly in um, in in Wisconsin. In the 1890s, the two largest employers in town, uh, the Winchester and Partridge Wagon Works and the Easterly Reaper Works, both left Uh, easterly moved to minnesota and the wagon works just shut down completely the town's economy took a nosedive the population dove by 25 percent. and it would take until about 1950 for the population to reach that gilded age level
0: and so the reason that we're talking about whitewater is because there are a whole slew of myths and legends and crazy stories that one can find on the internet about this relatively small town. And so so we're going to share a few of those with you um, now, and then we'll get into some of the actual history that could have inspired some of these stories. So if you do a quick Google search of Whitewater, you may come across the Spirit Tours that are uh, held in October by the Whitewater Chamber of Commerce. Their website boasts a multitude of stories of witches, ghosts, alleged murders, and occult practices. These stories are part of the town's history and promises that participants will hear the story of the Morris Pratt Institute, Mary Worth and the Winchester family, serial killer Nellie Horan, the poison widow, and other fascinating legends. The tour is conducted by U.S. Paranormal Research, a, a group, which, according to the Chamber of Commerce, brings all their paranormal equipment along on the tours just in case. <laughs> they could also have historians leading these tours. But, you
1: you know. could, but, you
0: know. <laughs> <laughs> the big selling point is that they visit places like the Witch's Tower, Mary Worth's Crypt, and Calvary Cemetery that are, they claim, usually closed to the public. Some of these places have paranormal legends attached to them. Others are what we might call true crime tourism, such as the serial killer Nellie Horan and the Poison Widow. Uh, There are a number of strange stories, urban legends, and myths surrounding Whitewater, with the town sometimes being called Second Salem. Taya Krulos, in his book Wisconsin Legends and Lore, describes some of the persistent tales. Quote, it is said (laughs) um, (laughs) that there is a supernatural vortex within an isosceles triangle-shaped area formed by the three cemeteries in town, Hillsdale, Calvary, and Oak Grove. It is an Oak Grove cemetery where witches supposedly had a temple. All of the members of the coven and their altar are buried on the site, supposedly. Everything inside this triangular area is haunted or cursed by witchcraft rituals. It is said in the center of this triangle was an establishment called the Pratt Institute, of which we'll hear more about later. There are also several other stories involving a woman named Mary Worth. This is not the Mary Worth who's the subject of the long-running King Feature Syndicate comic strip, but, well, there are a lot of possibilities of who Mary Worth might be. She might be an axe murderer, or she might be a witch. She might be an axe-murdering witch. We'll find out. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) On Halloween, Krulos explains, she rises from one of the cemeteries, which one, depends on who's telling the story, it seems, to find new victims. But who knows what they'll be victims of, witchcraft or axe murdering. There are legends surrounding the university as well. There's a water tower, or witches' tower, as it's often found called online, <laughs> where witches carry out black masses. Wells Hall, a resident hall, residence hall, is also said to be haunted. There are supposedly underground tunnels throughout the town, including under Wells Hall, which allowed the witches to move about whitewater without being seen. And this is Aaron's favorite, he wanted noted. Um, There's a book composed by the Witches of Whitewater in the University of Wisconsin Whitewater Library that, if one looks upon it, will drive one to suicide, or, if one's lucky, just insane.
1: Now, I want to point out that I did some real detective work about this book because the book is is wonderfully Lovecraftian, right? A a book that drives people insane. So I got on the UW-Whitewater Library's website, and they have a chat with a librarian feature on there. So I chatted with the librarian librarian and asked the librarian to either confirm or deny that they hold a book that drives people insane in their archives. She said that she could neither confirm nor deny that, but that she would have an archivist get in touch with me they have not done so. Now, there is an older... <laughs> clearly, there's a cover-up. There is an older um, interview with a UW-Whitewater I- archivist. I don't know if they still work at the institution, but this was in 2013. And this archivist explained that they do have a book that is under lock and key in the archive. It is an old Roman Catholic hymnal.
0: I, yeah, I came across that too.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, there there is... If we look at like the source of rumors, they have a book under lock and key. And if some library worker student saw this, they might have said, "Oh, yeah, there's a book They keep it locked <laughs> up." And you know, so things can start like that,
0: so Aaron, this is a lot of crazy stories, right?
1: Yes, it is. And <laughs> it's interesting to to sort of think about where some of these might have come from. Could it be that one place is really so filled with so much? paranormal insanity are there witches and axe murderers and serial killers and books that kill as we looked deeper into the history of whitewater we found a possible source for many of these tales so let's go back in time to december of 1820 which is when a man named morris pratt was born in madison county new york so in the early 1840s Morris and his three brothers moved to Whitewater, Wisconsin. Many neighboring families also moved, which was not unheard of at this time. So once in Wisconsin, the Pratt's started up a farm in Lima Township. And in 1850, he married his wife, Mary Jane Austin. During this time, Pratt grew very interested in the growing spiritualist movement, which was endorsed by former Wisconsin governor and U.S. Senator Nathaniel Talmadge. So Morris Pratt visited Lake mill spiritualist center in 1851 and became very supportive of the movement to the point of arguing with others and making a scene. He created such a scene at a Methodist Episcopal church in Milton Junction that caused him to be fined $15, a Janesville Daily Gazette article from September 1873 supported religious freedom, saying there are some people who are so narrow in their understandings as not to appreciate the fact that it is quite as important for their neighbors to enjoy freedom to worship God, according to the dictates of their own conscience, as themselves. And so the state instituted a fine for anyone who interrupts a religious service. It went on to say, a man who could attend a place where Mohammedans or Jews or spiritualists are assembled for religious exercises and not be as respectful in his deportment as though he were in a meeting made sacred by being in accord with his own religious conviction is a bigot and a fool. And because of all that, Morris Pratt of Milton Junction was yesterday fined $15 for molesting a religious meeting in the Methodist Episcopal Church at that place. It is but just to say that the defendant regards himself aggrieved by this judgment and has taken an appeal to the circuit court. An article a few days later explained that the Reverend Dr. Cogshaw complained of Pratt after the incident. According to Pratt, the reverend said something against spiritualism in his sermon, and Pratt felt the need to stand and defend his beliefs. In 1884, Pratt began attending meetings with Mary Folson Hayes Chenoweth, a self-proclaimed psychic healer and spiritual teacher. Now, Hayes Chenoweth had a spirit contact, and the spirit contact was a long-dead German professor. She told Pratt to purchase in northern Wisconsin some land and also advised him to invest in the Ashland and Germania iron mines in Ironwood, Michigan. Pratt ended up finding huge iron ore deposits on his land and made over $200,000, so, he's got all of this money. He's got this interest in spiritualism. And he then goes to work to fulfill his promise of using his money to support the work of spiritualism and to educate believers who could then spread the word.
0: So, Pratt began his Temple of Science, as he called it, in Whitewater. He bought property in 1888 and began constructing the town's most expensive home. The home was meant to be a school and contained two large lecture halls, one of which could seat $400. Or i think that should stay in (laughs) one of one of which could seat 400 people throughout 1890 the temple of science operated continuously and had sunday evening lectures that were open to the public because one of its goals was to spread spiritualism to others outside of the religion many in town ridiculed it um, but it was interesting when I was looking, um, for newspaper articles in, um, on newspapers.com, I didn't really find a lot of newspaper articles like outrightly bashing it. So, um, it could have been a, ha ha, ha there's, there's the crazy Morris Pratt or something, you yeah. know, as so he walked down the street, but it wasn't like it was like torch the building, take down Morris Pratt <laughs> or anything right. like that. Morris Pratt's wife died in 1900, and the Kenosha News reported on the 26th of January that Mary had a funeral according to spiritualist beliefs. Quote, the first of the kind held here and was held at the spiritual temple, which Pratt owns and which he claims he was directed to build by friends in the spirit world. George H. Brooks of Wheaton, Illinois, a lecturer of the sect, conducted the service. He made an address under inspiration in a semi trance condition and also read communications which Pratt had received from the other side since the death of his wife. And then later on in the year, in December of 1900, the Boscobel Dial reported in an article that there was a, quote, unusual golden wedding anniversary in Whitewater. Fifty years ago, Mr. and Mrs. Morris Pratt were married. About a year ago, Mrs. Pratt died. Just before death, she promised her husband that she would be with him on their golden wedding day. The Pratt's were leaders of the spiritualists in the state. Last Wednesday, Mr. Pratt invited 20 friends to his home and read to them a communication from his dead wife, which he said came to him that day. A feast was spread and the wedding celebration was held just as though the dead woman was present. I found that very fascinating. (laughs)
1: I like it. I I think it's It's
0: not it's, like super mournful or no, like No,
1: it's it's sweet.
0: <laughs> it's kind it's of, really
1: sweet. Yeah. yeah.
0: And I mean, I always think you have to think about it like at this time, everybody's wondering about death. And, you know, death is so common in cities and you know, people generally are dying at their home as opposed to away in hospitals. And this is just something that I've read and care a lot about <laughs> sharing with people that that some of these different ideas like this or post mortem photography or whatever, like they're not so weird as we think they are today. And they're not as morbid as we like look back on them and project onto. But
1: and something that, that goes along with that, that- that that isn't the case anymore is there weren't really funeral homes. I mean, there were funeral people and there were morticians, but a lot of times.
0: Yeah. It was about this time that it was, they were taking off really. It
1: was traditional for, for, you know, things to be held in the home.
0: Yeah. I mean the historic house that I, I work in now, um, two, two different family members, at at least two were laid out in the home. So, um, yeah, normal. <laughs> and the one was as late as 1930. So this is, you know, <laughs> long into the into the 20th, farther into the 20th century than I think we would imagine it would have been. Um, but so it was about a year after Pratt's wife passed away that he incorporated the temple and renamed it the Morris Pratt Institute. So he formalized the organization. In December of 1901, he remarried to a woman named Zulema Taylor. The pair attended the National Spiritualist Association annual convention in Washington, DC, and offered the properties to be utilized for educational purposes, similar to the training school that had popped up in Lilydale, New York. So he wanted to gift the institute, you know, give it over to the association. I assume because he thought I'm getting up there in years. <laughs> and I want to make sure that this <laughs> continues on. I am adding that as my own interpretation, but I imagine it was on his mind. After they attended the convention, there was a newspaper article printed in the Herald of Reedstown, Wisconsin, that reported that the Temple of Spiritualism owned by Morris Pratt has been given by him to the National Spiritualistic Association to be used as a school of spiritualism. The building was erected by Mr. Pratt and his wife, who has since died, at a cost of $30,000 and is a very handsome building. The school will accommodate 150 students and will be open January 1st under the supervision of Reverend A.J. Weaver of Old Orchard, Maine. Mr. Pratt will be allowed to make his home in the building during the remainder of his life. Now, the thing that this newspaper didn't know at this time was that the association would end up turning down this offer. They said that they did not have the capacity to run the institute as it needed to be run. Um, But of course, the newspaper didn't have all that information. So they printed that it was going to be taken over. And that just wasn't the
1: case. And that seems like a good place to take a break. We'll be back with what happened next to the Morris Pratt Institute.
0: You can follow Great Lakes Lore on Twitter, Instagram, and like us on Facebook.
1: We welcome your feedback about this episode or any other episode you listen to on social media or via email at Great Lakes Lore Podcast at gmail.com. And uh, we, we love getting that kind of uh, feedback and, and questions and, and comments from listeners.
0: You can also find us on Patreon. So our Patreon has two different tiers that offer different benefits. Things like um, early access to episodes, um, bonus episodes, and field trips, all research blogs, all kinds of things. So you can check us out there and we will be forever grateful (laughs) for the support that you provide us.
1: Absolutely. And you can find that at patreon.com slash cheesomedia, C-H-E-E-S-O media, or click the link in the show notes.
0: So Aaron, have you been reading?
1: I have been. I, I have okay. been. I have been diligently reading my book about the Devil's Den incident by Terry Lovelace. I'm, I'm sorry, by Terry Lovelace Esquire. I got to get that right. And um, I'm not finished with it because it's February is not over yet. But I'm finding it very interesting. I, I think um, sort of supposed extraterrestrial encounters are really fascinating, and I like that there's kind of a government cover-up angle to it. At least um, that's what I've sort of detected up to where I've been uh, reading. One thing I don't like is, is I, I find his you know encounters interesting and his experiences interesting. I don't really need his opinion about the UFO phenomenon writ large or his explanation of UFO history or what he thinks the government might know tell me about your experience through your perceptions
0: i mean if you had something like that happen to you though don't you think that you would try to think about you know the bigger thing that it's a part of and kind of work through what you think that is and and share those ideas interpretations that kind of thing i mean that seems a little harsh to me
1: (laughs) i might but i would do it after i'd shared what my experience actually was and share the process whereby okay i had this experience and then i tried to figure out what the big picture might be might be he Mm -hmm. starts off with the big picture stuff before we get his own story which Mm -hmm. i thought was a little backwards and he doesn't and so he doesn't really relate it to things he personally experienced Mm -hmm. it's just sort of almost, I found a website that has a sort of timeline of UFO history. And I'm just sort of relating mm-hmm. that before I get into the personal stuff. So I, no, I, I agree. I, I think sort of sort of extrapolating my experiences to the big picture of what others have experienced and, and the history of the phenomenon would be useful. But um, I, I think it's more useful after we know what his experiences are in some detail.
0: Gotcha. So well, more of an organizational.
1: It's an organizational thing. And I, I've, I've got some disagreements with some of the things he said on a factual basis. What about you, Sam? What are you reading and are you reading and how's the reading going?
0: I'm still reading uh Mothman prophecies. I am not that far into it. Close to halfway. <laughs> um, it's good. I'm, I'm enjoying it. I have some organizational problems with it as well. Um, it's just a little all over the place. And as somebody who cares a lot about writing in an organized fashion and setting up everything from topic sentences to the thesis of a chapter to the thesis of a whole thing, and who worked in a writing center, I'd be like, hey, kid, you really need to work on this a little bit. So um, I I think each story is really interesting and he's making some larger points that I find really interesting and fascinating from sort of a religious studies perspective even. Um, But it's like, oh, oh, we're back here now. (laughs) So like if it was more of a cohesive narrative, I mean, obviously these things don't necessarily fit into a cohesive narrative. I understand this. But like, I think there are just ways to set it up that would Pull you along a little bit more, or give you a hint at where the thing is going, or or something like that.
1: <laughs> Having read the book a few times, I agree. I, I I think there are there are absolutely some some organizational things. I always found it difficult to follow exactly what was going on at which time. Yeah,
0: because it jumps all over the place. So it's like, wait, when when was this last thing that we heard? When was when was this encounter? When was it Because it's just like. It's whiplash or something. (laughs) Timeline whiplash.
1: (laughs) I'm really interested to hear your thoughts when you're finished with the whole thing. I think that's going to be an exciting conversation.
0: All right. Shall we get back to Whitewater?
1: Yes. Let's go back to to the Institute. All right. So Morris Pratt dies in December 1902 from a stroke. An article in Eau Claire, Wisconsin's Weekly Telegram read, quote, Morris Pratt's funeral was held Wednesday afternoon in the spiritualist temple built by him. The auditorium of the temple did not present a scene of mourning, but instead appeared to be decorated for a festive occasion. The hall was hung in green and white carnations, and the colors of the school of spiritualism, yellow and white, were hung above the altar railing. The members of the congregation, although they deeply loved Mr. Pratt, exhibited little grief over the death of their benefactor, end quote. After his death, the National Spiritualist Association did take over the operation of the Morris Pratt Institute, despite not being interested while he was alive a little earlier on, as you heard before the break. Now that Pratt is gone, they take it over. I don't think we should read too much into that necessarily. It's just maybe no. they were in a better position to do so by that point.
0: Or they realized that it would fold with him gone and so they right. were like, Well, I better get this now.
1: <laughs> or they didn't want to run it not just because of resources, but if the guy who founded it is still sort of hanging yeah, around, that true. might be kinda awkward. That's true.
0: Or maybe there were some big bequests after his death that allowed for it Ooh, to
1: that that made made it easier <laughs> to run. Yeah. <laughs> So the school continued, the Morris Pratt Institute continued, and it was for men and women, uh, both were welcome. It held commonplace classes like grammar and history, as well as classes such as psychic research, mediumship, and the science of seances. <laughs> the school, I love that, the science of seances, it just, that just that phrase just sums up this time period. It does. <laughs> it. The school, quote, rejects nothing because it is new and unpopular. It accepts nothing because it is old and unpopular. It seeks only the truth, end quote. And Whitewater became known as the Mecca of modern spiritualism. The school closed for a time during the Great Depression, but reopened in 1935. It didn't last long, though. It closed in Whitewater, but reopened in Milwaukee, where students had a better chance of finding a job and financial support while attending the school. The temple became a rest home, then a girl's dormitory for the Wisconsin Teachers College, The building was torn down in 1961 and became Wisconsin Telephone Company, and by that time, uh, the Wisconsin Teachers College was well on its way to becoming the University of Wisconsin at Whitewater. In 1977, the Morris Pratt Institute in Milwaukee was spiffed up and rededicated to the education of spiritualism, and it still exists as such today. Their website states that the Morris Pratt Institute is mission-driven to provide quality education for commissioned spiritualist healers, certified mediums, licentiate ministers, ordained ministers, and national spiritualist teachers for those who wish to earn those credentials.
0: So this all begs the question, what then is... Spiritualism. We've said that word many times
1: already this (laughs) evening.
0: And we did speak about it quite broadly on our The Paranormalist Personal episode um, as we were talking about why folks want to experience the the paranormal and things like that. Um, But we'll give you a little bit more of a background here. So the American spiritualism movement is often traced back to the Fox sisters in 1848. They were in upstate New York and claimed they could hear rappings in their house. They would ask questions and there would be like little knocks. (laughs) on the wall. (laughs) And they then became famous, were were toted all around first the state and then beyond to to show off their talents. And I'm definitely sweeping this with very broad strokes, but you can look up the history of the Fox sisters if you want to find out more about their their lives specifically, Um, because eventually some of them say, no, it was all a hoax. But then the other one says, no, that one doesn't know what she's talking about, you know all becomes a thing. Um, But still, they kicked off a movement, and there's no doubt about that. But spiritualism really has roots that go even further back to the mid-1700s. A man named Emanuel Swedenborg, he was a Swedish theologian who lived from 1688 to 1772, wrote on many religious topics, but he kicked off a new religious movement when he believed he had a vision of Jesus Christ in 1744. Prior to this, Swedenborg had explored much about the natural world, and he even attempted to connect it to the spiritual as he conducted anatomical studies in search of the human soul. After this vision, though, he committed himself to his theological pursuits and published many books on the topic. He worked to interpret the Bible in terms of the vision of the Lord and the heaven and angels he had had. Swedenborg's belief in God, its essence, and power remained unchanged, and he believed that all creation had a foundation in divine love and wisdom. And now we won't go into all of Swedenborg's specific beliefs, but it's important to know that many viewed his vision and gift as a kind of mediumship. The first Swedenborgian societies developed in the 1780s, so um, just a few years after he passed away, and Swedenborg had a profound influence on future writers and artists, including transcendentalists like Ralph Waldo Emerson and artists like George Innes. Some of the spiritualist movements, including the association itself, clung to Swedenborg as a kind of father. Because in a 1747 work, he wrote, The Lord and his divine mercy has granted me the opportunity for several years now to keep company with spirits and angels, to hear them talking, and to speak with them in turn. But Swedenborg would later warn against trying to contact spirits on one's own, because you'd never know if you're letting in an evil spirit. <laughs> but as the Fox sisters kicked off American spiritualism, and seances, stage shows, and the like spread throughout the country... There was also a serious religious and scientific following that culminated with the creation of the National Spiritualism Association of Churches, which seemed to provide a solid set of doctrines and beliefs to a movement that tended to be very anti-establishment and have variations across the board.
1: You've got spiritualism and you go back to Swedenborg and Mm -hmm. what… I don't know, for some reason that put me in mind of just the, the long tradition of of Christian mystics in medieval Europe. Yeah, um,
0: he's connected to that. And yeah. he would probably connect himself more to, to that. Like as you're Googling it and things like, you know, those are the things that are popping up. I think that that's definitely what he saw himself as more than the um, counterculture religious folks. Um, right. They saw it just as this mediumship. And so many people were down for revolution and all of these other different kinds of things at the time that I think they saw this as like a, whoa, this man could talk to spirits and angels. That means I can too. <laughs> and so, and so, you know, there was that, then there's the Fox sisters and it was just sort of this perfect storm. Um, you throw in a little dash of some modern ish science and <laughs> you you got a thing. <laughs>
1: The National Spiritualism Association of Churches was founded in 1893, and they define spiritualism on their website as, quote, the science, philosophy, and religion of continuous life based upon the demonstrated fact of communication by means of mediumship with those who live in the spirit world. So it's a science because it investigates, analyzes, and classifies facts and manifestations demonstrated from the spirit side of life. It's a philosophy because it studies the laws of nature, both on the seen and unseen sides of life. And it's a religion because it strives to understand and to comply with the physical, mental, and spiritual laws of nature, which are the laws of God. They define a spiritualist as, quote, one who believes as the basis of his or her religion in the communications between this and the spirit world by means of mediumship, And who endeavors to mold his or her character and conduct in accordance with the highest teachings derived from such communication. And their website has a history page, and they trace the birth of modern spiritualism back to the Fox sisters in Hydesville, New York, and mention others such as Emanuel Swedenborg, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Andrew Jackson Davis, and others. The organization's headquarters is in Lilydale, New York, and it's still a, a strong, thriving uh, organization. There are seven spiritualist churches just in Michigan, and I assume even more in some other places.
0: Yeah, I just looked at Michigan because okay. I was curious. <laughs> We're both in Michigan, so That's I right, thought yeah. it would provide a good, uh, a good context there. And interestingly, so Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote um, a history of a two-part, I believe, two-part, two-volume history of spiritualism, and he puts everything back to Swedenborg. So he's yeah. he's on the Swedenborg bus. <laughs> and where does this leave us? Because we started talking about all of these crazy stories about whitewater witches and murders and. Weird isosceles triangles <laughs> and all <laughs> kinds of things. And now we spent a lot of time talking about spiritualism. And you might be wondering, well, what the heck are they doing? <laughs> One of our theories, I think the, the thing that, that we kind of think is that stories of the spiritualist school stirred up tales of witchcraft and spooky things in a bunch of, you know, the townsfolks and eventually, you know, these um teachers who attended the teachers' college, and then eventually the University of Wisconsin Whitewater students as well. When you have a history like that, I mean, it's not a common thing to have a spiritualist temple in town, right?
1: (laughs) No, that's very unusual.
0: Yeah. And we, for some reason, have this very dark image of spiritualism, but I'm going to challenge all of you listening to look up the I want to say it right National Spiritualism Association of Churches we'll put the link in the show notes it's a very happy place they <laughs> they yeah. they're, they're like symbol is the sunflower and as was relayed in the the one newspaper article uh, for Pratt's death they had their colors were yellow and white which makes them the sunflower make a lot of sense <laughs> um but but we have this very dark image of spiritualism we sort of give it this whole And I shudder to say this, but Victorian aesthetic, because I don't know what else we'd call it. Uh, Um, You know, I hate that too, but that's what it is. (laughs) Um, It's darkened parlors, overstuffed, overfilled parlors. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of dark woodwork, lots of weird frills and lace. And that Victorian style often decorated in sort of these dark natural tones. So you get a lot of dark greens and dark maroon colors and, and all of these things. And so... That, I think, paints quite an image of these seances happening in parlors, right? (laughs) And spiritualism is also often wrapped into the occult movement of the 19th century, not necessarily incorrectly. The definition of the word occult is, quote, supernatural, mystical, or magical beliefs, practices, or phenomena. That's a lot. I mean, a lot of things could fit into there. Yes. That's very broad, um, but in our Christianized Western world, we have a very dark conception of what a cult really means. I think we're all picturing pentagrams and potions, and I don't know, cutting heads off bats or something. Um, <laughs> a lot of that kind of stuff. And what? <laughs>
1: I'm picturing Ozzy Osbourne biting the heads off birds up on stage. Well,
0: that, there you go. I think rockers, I think there are some rockers who have sort of played into that, into that image, but, but so that, that's what we picture as a cult. And of course, like the, the very crazy, dark Aleister Crowley, I mean that we could go into that whole thing, but we're not going to tonight, no. but we could, no. <laughs> um, and Some of it is, but that doesn't mean all of it is. So spiritualism fits into the occult, but all of the occult does not fit into spiritualism. Another sort of theory that I have is that spiritualism was a movement free from many of the social constraints of the time. So women were allowed to move around as experts. They were allowed to be on stage. They were allowed to speak in public and, well, not just converse in public, but like have speeches in public. (laughs) At a time when that was like literally illegal sometimes in in some towns for for women to do. And um, so the idea of female mediums, students, etc., then becoming labeled as witches, being vilified by the mainstream, isn't necessarily a large leap to make. Because you already have sort of the female other who is holding seances or learning about spiritualism or whatever it is. And they're just a witch, right? So... (laughs) Um, that's, that's another one of my theories because it's kind of like, well, where do we get witches from? Right.
1: <laughs> that's a question I had for you actually, at this point, maybe you could help us out or help me out. Um, everybody else is probably already ahead of where I am <laughs> through these things in, in your looking at the history of whitewater and the history of the Morris Pratt Institute in the newspapers and things, cause you, you found some great stuff in the newspapers mm-hmm. about it. Do you see witches showing up back then at the time? Do you see, like, like warnings of witchcraft or things like that?
0: No, I don't. I mean, even in that newspaper article um, about Morris Pratt, you know, speaking out at, at that um, – during that church service, they they didn't even say necessarily bad things about him, like the crazy devil worshiping Morris right, Pratt or, right. like – why doesn't he just get his coven and w- coven of witches and move out of town, or you know anything like that? It was just kind of like, well, he shouldn't have spoken out of turn, so now he has to pay us fifteen dollars.
1: <laughs> right, and and the and and one of the things from from that article that the tone of it is is very much like we wouldn't he wouldn't want anybody going into his spiritualist mm-hmm. church and saying anything, so he should you know leave the Methodists alone. Yeah. So it, yeah, so I was I was just wondering if if there was. Cause you asked where the witches come from and I was like, yeah. when do they show up? And it seems from, from what you've said that they don't show up until after spiritualism is no longer a going concern in whitewater. It, it comes after that.
0: Yeah. I think it's a lot of like stories being passed down, you know, maybe somebody's great grandma had like heard about Morris Pratt's funeral or had seen, you know, students at the school or something. And, Slowly, her story is passed down to her daughter and daughter and daughter. I don't know why I'm making the story being told by women, but <laughs> that's just what I'm picturing in my head. And, and and by the time we get to, you know, the 1950s, they're witches. There was one story of a witch that Erin and I read about. Her name was Mary Worth. And Mary Worth was accused of being the axe-murdering witch <laughs> or just an ax murderess. Don't know. Um, She was accused of murdering the Winchester family. And I looked all over the place and I did not find any story about Mary Worth existing, (laughs) let alone (laughs) um, murdering an entire family. I looked on Find a Grave and I did find an entry for a Mary Worth and it had a picture of a late 1800s woman. I don't know that that's Mary Worth. I've never seen any other (laughs) picture of her to know. And it had like no birth date, no death date. Um, It had no specific location of where she was buried. And if you've ever been on find a grave, usually there's a picture of the headstone or something. There wasn't even that. So then I decided to get on family search. And I searched and I did find a Mary Worth in that county that, um, that Whitewater is in. And she seemed to have lived a very normal life, according to her census reports. <laughs> um, her c- entries in the census, censuses, sensei. <laughs> I always, I always want it to be sensei because censuses is a terrible word to say.
1: So on those census records, under occupation, nowhere did it say which.
0: No, and she was like married and had kids and stuff, so.
1: And then the next one, it said axe murderer 10 years later. So,
0: okay, <laughs> no. nothing, Nothing no. like that. <laughs> no, and I mean, there were no, it's not like... No newspaper trial records. There was like no no evidence at and, and, all.
1: And this is, and I mean, this isn't like it's the 18th century on the frontier. This is
0: uh-uh. this no, because we're finding articles about Morris Pratt left and right.
1: right. So <laughs> this would have been if the Winchester family, who I assume was the same Winchester family who was the wagon works people, one of the biggest companies oh, in town. True. I assume there would have been some mention of them being murdered with axes. Yeah,
0: one would think. One would think. Now, one thing we did find when looking for Mary Worth, though, were some stories about a Mary Worth who is from more of like North Illinois, like north of Chicago. And she was listed as being part of the Reverse Underground Railroad. Now, Aaron, oh. as a historian who is older than I am, have you ever heard of the Reverse Underground Railroad?
1: Despite my advanced age, I
0: have <laughs> not. <laughs> To be like you've been, you've been in the history field longer than I have. Even
1: that's not how it's that's not how it sounded,
0: Aaron. As a fellow historian, have you ever heard of the reverse underground railroad?
1: No, Samantha, I have not. <laughs> um, so the reverse underground railroad, basically, when you explained what this was to me, uh, what it basically sounds like is a made-up term to describe what was the practice of of capturing and returning runaway slaves for reward money, um, which doesn't need a fancy name like reverse underground railroad, but it makes um, it
0: sound so much more coordinated. Like it's yes, a whole network I was, of people. <laughs>
1: exactly. I was, I was going to say this, this sounds like a massive, massive operation. Yes. And you know, um, after 1850, you have the the, a stronger federal fugitive slave act and whitewater what that's the thing whitewater was was a staunchly abolitionist place like solid it doesn't seem like the sort of place where there would have been prominent slave catchers employed um and also she wasn't just capturing these runaway slaves
0: well no i didn't get to that part yet (laughs) she was capturing them and at first, the first thing I found just said she was torturing them and then sending them back south. And then th- it, it escalates to be torturing, using as part of her black magical practices, and then returning them if they were still alive south. Again, the only thing that we found that told the story were like crappy blogs. I'm just going to say it. Crappy yeah, blogs. That's
1: the best description. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Clearly no evidence. Like no Someone said that their, oh, what was it? Like a grandmother had witnessed her being burned at the stake stake. or something. But that means that like this would have had to have happened like pre-emancipation proclamation. Like. Correct. Who, who would have been alive?
1: (laughs) And also somebody can correct me, Sam, you can correct me. I mean, you're young, but I think you might know this. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't think. Was burning at the stake an authorized method of execution in, in the United States at any time?
0: I, I really don't think so. I, I
1: don't <laughs> believe it was. I, I mean,
0: I, once we move out of weird colonial witch persecution, which we didn't, we weren't even burning them at the stake here. Never mind. Like, yes,
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, burning witches is is very much a continental European. Yes, thing. it is. Yep. These Mary Worth stories are are just outrageous.
0: Oh, I just have to throw in here because I thought, huh, well, cause then there were connections of, they called her sometimes bloody Mary worth.
1: Right. And so then
0: there were weird connections to like the bloody Mary thing. Like turn out the lights, look in a mirror, say bloody Mary three times or a hundred. I saw something. I was like, that that's commitment. So nope. nobody's like a, got time for that. No, no, no three. <laughs> um, and um, you know, bloody Mary will come and like kill you or something. So I was like, oh my gosh. Now I wonder because. The stories of Mary Worth from Whitewater had her killing the Winchester family. Now, there is an episode of Supernatural in which they go after Bloody Mary. (laughs) So I thought, how, what, what, where does this take place? Like, I had just wondered if maybe there was some weird, like, supernatural did a thing and then somebody else, like, extrapolated from that. It was not in Wisconsin. It was not connected to Whitewater, that episode. But her name was Mary Worthington. And she was after those Winchester boys.
1: <laughs> so this Mary Worth story is is just
0: infuriating
1: because there's there's so much <laughs> dumbness to it so much and historical ignorance but also a a complete lack of any even glancing attempt at documentation or, or verification.
0: And it's promoted by the Chamber of Commerce. Yes, it That's is. That's what blows my mind. Yeah. They say you're going to see her crypt. And the thing that they show online as the crypt of Mary Worth, like a it's nowhere on it. Does it say that it doesn't say her name? I don't even think she was a person who lived in Whitewater for crying out loud.
1: <laughs> if, if If you live in Whitewater or you're a member of the Whitewater Chamber of Commerce, we welcome your feedback on this episode. If you've got proof that Mary Worth was hanging around, please let us know.
0: Because I don't want to be this angry about this. No,
1: no. If, if, if we're angry for no reason, please, um, please inform us. Yeah. But um, until we get that documentation and proof, we're <laughs> going to consider you a bunch of clowns. Okay. Honestly. <laughs> so
0: Aaron and I do speaking engagements, but not in whitewater. <laughs>
1: So one thing that could be going on is a lack of understanding about spiritualism, seeing it as something dark and mysterious and occultish in the worst way, uh, could have mixed with actual stories like those of Nellie Horan or Myrtle Shoud, the Poison Widow. These are true stories that we actually found proof of, like newspaper articles and things. So Nellie Horan... um, The Horan family was headed by Joseph and Judith Horan, and they and their daughters Nellie, Anna, and Agnes came to Whitewater in 1880. In 1882, Judith died suddenly in massive sort of writhing pain, and supposedly she showed signs of being poisoned in the days leading up to her death. Joseph, the husband, died in a similar manner six weeks later. Now, their estate, which was valued at around $5,000, was divided among the daughters with Agnes, the youngest daughter, who was about 17 at the time, receiving the largest share. Now, two months later, Agnes was found dead at home, (laughs) and her share was divided between the surviving sisters. Two years later, Anna becomes ill, and Nellie comes to Anna's home to care for her, and gave her what was supposed to be morphine, which itself is not healthy, but you know, things <laughs> were different. Anna dies a couple hours later, and the coroner discovers that she had strychnine in her stomach. And somebody mentioned that Nellie had been witnessed buying strychnine just days before Anna's death from a local store. Nellie's arrested, and Nellie claims that she had rats in her office, and that's why she needed the strychnine poison to kill the rats which is actually pretty sensible Nellie, you know goes on trial but she is acquitted that was not the case with myrtle shod the poison widow it's another poisoning story also in whitewater a few decades later in 1921 myrtle shod poisoned her husband with strychnine and later in 1923 attempted to poison her four children as well. And she goes to the police confessing the crime. She had already been under suspicion that the town rumor mill was talking about how her husband's death was kind of suspicious. But after she tries to kill her kids, she goes to the cops, turns herself in. She said she gave the kids candy laced with strychnine. The oldest was a 16 year old boy. And he actually got sick and went to the hospital because he ate the candy. The younger three kids Weren't affected because they put the candy in their mouths and they're like, ugh, this tastes awful. And they spat it out and they didn't have any ill effects. As far as motive goes, n- newspapers reported that at the time of her husband's death, the couple ran a boarding house with many students of the nearby Whitewater Normal School or teaching school. After her husband's initially mysterious death, one of those students, a male student, dropped off the grid, vanished, disappeared. Could he, newspapers speculated, have been involved? They also reported that Myrtle had been, quote, committed to a mental hospital following a nervous breakdown. Could the murders have been due to what the newspapers called a mental aberration? And papers also speculated that there could have been a financial motive. Her husband's will left $2,000 to each child. But the will specified if the child died, that money would go to Myrtle. And so she could be in line to get a lot of money if all four of her kids were to die another possible motive is that she had fallen in love with ernest kufal one of her young boarders who might have been somebody she was carrying on with and being with him was a motivation to kill her husband that was one of the things that was circulating in the newspapers and also speculation from the newspapers Perhaps she believed that Ernest would not want to raise those children if they married. Ernest denied that was an issue. And he said, Myrtle knew that I was a fan of the kids. That's not how he said it, but that's the general upshot. He had, he had no issue with the kids. So Myrtle is found guilty of manslaughter in the death of her husband and is sentenced to 20 years in prison. the following year, Kufal himself would be charged as an accomplice in the husband's murder, but he would be acquitted. There was not enough evidence to actually link him to the crime, despite the fact that they ended up together romantically after her husband's death. It it didn't hold up in court. Myrtle's sentence would be commuted in 1929, and she and Kufal would go on to move to Minnesota and live, one presumes, happily ever after. And a fun little sort of Footnote to the story is that in 1933, Kufal sued Master Detective Magazine and a railway station in Whitewater that sold Master Detective Magazine. He sued them for $15,000, alleging that the magazine's account of his trial was libelous. Um, I, I guess he didn't like the fact that they reported that he was thought to be an accomplice. Uh, I could not find any um, stories about how that libel trial turned out, but I'm pretty sure you can't necessarily sue the Newsstand at the train station that's selling the libelous publication. I'm not sure <laughs> that they're necessarily culpable for that. And so today, tying this back to the larger story of Whitewater and maybe why it's part of the tours is that the land the Shouds lived on um, is now a part of the UW Whitewater campus, uh, the sports complex, if you're curious. <laughs> and you can see it from calvary cemetery you can sort of look out and and see that part of the campus and the land and, and so this has nothing to do with the paranormal there's no ghosts there's no spirits this isn't linked to the morris pratt institute in any way but it's it's creepy crime fuels stuff. the fire <laughs> pardon
0: fuels the fire perhaps
1: fuels, right it, it, it fuels this fire of this is a place where dark and sinister things have taken place. Um, and it's within that triangle, right?
0: And, and, you know, one thing I was thinking of, because, you know, there are reports that, you know, covens of witches are seen outside the water tower and, and different things. And maybe that's, maybe so. Like, maybe there are, like, <laughs> modern witch folk um, who maybe don't have a firm grasp of what spiritualism is <laughs> and thought, like, oh, this would be a great place for us, or local teen girls, maybe who are like, Oh my God, have you heard about spiritualism? And they get their Ouija boards out and then they run out to the water tower. And like, it's sort of this weird myth that just keeps feeding into itself because there is this like cool, super fascinating nugget of history in this town that could inspire some weird stories. And then everybody just keeps going with it.
1: That makes sense to me. It, yeah. it really does. I'm imagining you've got some girls who hear these myths about, or these stories about creepy spiritualist stuff. And then somebody sees these girls with a Ouija board and, oh my <laughs> gosh, there's witches. Right. They're emulating the witches that they are later mistaken to be. Right? If there's that as much witches sense.
0: as those young girls who were hanging out with Tituba in the forest outside of Salem, which means they're not witches. Well, Aaron, we've found the spiritualists. We, have. we debunked Mary Worth.
1: We, we eviscerated talked- <laughs> Mary Worth.
0: <laughs> we talked about two actual women who killed, potentially killed folks.
1: <laughs> One who um, killed,
0: and the me. other. I seems like a really strong case. <laughs>
1: I'll, I'll, I'll allow it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um. Do you think we kind of got to the bottom of some of these crazy stories that that are told I- on these? Ghost tours? I, I, I,
1: think, I think we did. And um, I'd be interested to go on one of these ghost tours to see yes. what they say. Mm-hmm. To see the degree to which they acknowledge that they don't know exactly what the entire story is. Or that there are no supernatural elements to the Poison Widow or Nellie Horan. That these mm-hmm. are just crimes mm-hmm. that occurred. Um, and so I don't want to judge the ghost tours too harshly, I mean, a little harshly, but um, not not too harshly. But I, I think I think we've drawn a pretty nice through line from the spiritualism to um, how that could be twisted and viewed through weird sort of pop culture occult lenses to mm-hmm. become something that it's not. Um, mm-hmm. And I am still curious as to what's locked in the basement archive of the uw whitewater library
0: just a hymnal thanks for listening
1: the as yet unnamed episode <laughs> about whitewater <laughs> was written and produced by samantha ingle and Aaron gullius
0: our music is by Raphael crux
1: great lakes lore is a chizo media production
0: chizo media our heart is with the people
1: until next time don't get lost in the lore